Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ken Reed. Ken has been a Sportsnet host and broadcaster since 2011, and over that time, in addition to co-anchoring Sportsnet Central, has covered the 2012 London Olympics, the Stanley Cup Finals, the Grey Cup, and Super Bowl Forty-Seven. He is the best-selling author of multiple books on both hockey and hockey cards. His newest book, coming this October, but available now on presale, is aptly named Ken Reed's Hometown Hockey Heroes. Ken is also deep into sports cards, with a collection now surpassing 70,000 cards. He also serves as an ambassador for eBay's Authenticity Guarantee Program for Trading Cards. Welcome, Ken, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm at home. And I think that was the first official plug of my new book coming this October. So thanks, buddy. You get number one status. Awesome. Well, we're definitely going to talk about this book. I do want to ask what part of Toronto you reside in. And if I may, ask about how your family's doing. Uh, I live in the beach. Family's great. Wife's busy. I got two young boys who are busy. One's uh, really into sports. One's kind of getting in there. I got the one guy playing AAA hockey and AAA baseball, so I'm really busy with that. Oh, boy. The other guy is uh, becoming a big Blue Jays fan. It's interesting. Um, He's eight, and we were at a game a few weeks ago, and he's really engaged in the game this year. And last year, he'd kind of sit there bored and just ask for food all the time. I said, buddy, why are you so into the games this year? And it was amazing. He's eight, and he said, the clock. Like, the pitch clock has changed everything it it makes the game move faster it's more engaging it's you don't lose focus so he's into that he plays basketball Uh, he's a great little artist great little takes his guitar so I got two boys who who fill my days and fill my weekends so busy during the day with the boys and busy at night with work well fantastic you sound like you are in balance which is great yeah I'm trying man I'm trying Let's go, if we can, all the way back, get the Ken Reed story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Yeah, I grew up in Picto, Nova Scotia, small town. Uh, when I grew up, it was about 5,000. Now it's about 3,000. It's on the northeast shore of Nova Scotia, about an hour and a half from Halifax. If you've ever taken the ferry to PEI from Nova Scotia, well, I'm the ferry town. So there's a little rotary outside town that'll get you down to the ferry. So I think it was the the classic Canadian 80s small town upbringing, bikes with no helmets, road hockey all uh, all winter, golf, baseball all summer, uh, scraps outside the schoolyards. I'm always amazed my sons and my oldest is in grade four. There's never been a fight at their school. I'm like, oh my god, it's like I, that. Mike said that's very good, but in my own mind, I'm going, wow, that's boring. We had at least one tilt a week. You know, keep you occupied. You know, it's like, I guess what every dad would say, never inside. Now, there were video games, but we were always outside, especially compared to today's kids. I'm constantly amazed walking around a neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood full of kids and you never see them. I'm like, where are these kids? They're all inside half the time. So I encourage my boys to get out, get a little dirty, make some mistakes, learn as they go. But it's kind of what we did. Uh, I grew up, sports were obviously a major part of my life. Uh, Wasn't very good at them, but loved them. And, uh, yeah, just, just grew up in a small town and there wasn't much to do other than, than play sports, play sports or smoke cigarettes. And I went with playing sports. <laughs> Always a good call. Yeah, yeah. And Ken, since you were basically the age of nine, you knew exactly what you wanted to do with your life. And this was because your dad told you what? 
Yeah, I got cut from uh, a hockey team in town, and I went to one of the lower level teams, and that's when I realized I wasn't going to play in the NHL. So I had to come up with an alternative career plan. And Dad and I were watching a game, and I guess I probably was lamenting or something about what was me. And he said, you know, the guys who broadcast the games, they get in for free. They get to watch games. And I thought, wow, that's a fantastic idea. So I guess that planted the seed in my head that I wanted to be a sportscaster. I remember in grade five once thinking maybe I should be a physiotherapist because they get to work with the teams. And my dad was a doctor. But then I was not nearly good enough in school to be, to be a physiotherapist. Yeah, broadcasting, I always wanted to do it. And for me, the broadcasters were always uh, part of the show. And uh, like a guy like Bob Cole, he could just bring you into the game. I love that Bob just does the play-by-play. He's not boarding down with stats. He just brings me into the game. So that's kind of what I what I always wanted to do. And for better or worse, that's that was my plan. I know it drove my dad nuts because a little bit because, I mean, it's a far-fetched idea, right? Uh, if you want to be a teacher, there's jobs. If you want to be a lawyer, there's jobs. If you want to be a doctor, there's jobs. If you want to be a broadcaster, you're kind of kind of rolling the dice a little, but I think it drove him nuts because I didn't care about academics all that much. Like I was the doctor's kid, one of the doctor's kids in town, and I wasn't, not, not that I wasn't academically smart, I just didn't care. So I'm like, mm-hmm. eh, if I get a 65 in math or a 52 in math, I don't care. I'm just going to be a broadcaster. You know, I don't have to be brilliant. So all the other doctor's kids were and dad, 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 and a bunch of his buddies started a clinic up in town. So he moved to town with all his med school buddies. So they all had kids the same age. So I was the academic outlier. So it was a, it was a huge mystery what was wrong with me. But you knew what you wanted to do, and you know you just got to get at it. Exactly. Your first big well, I, yeah. I considered uh, like high school a waste of time because I'm like, what? Why am I taking math? What am I going to need math for? Like all I need to figure out is goals against average, and I was correct <laughs> right in that assumption. So math to me was a complete and total waste of time, and I will stand by those words. Having said that, you did get a uh, university degree. I did. I did. I got a BA in journalism from UMaine, but that was needed, right? Like you need, I got, I got no problem getting the degree. It's just like when I was taking courses in high school that like I never took physics and chemistry and I was like, why aren't you taking physics and chemistry? I'm like, well, I'm going to be, I want to be a sports broadcaster. I think. <laughs> so I enjoyed history. Like, that was my best subject, and it makes sense because, like, I love sports history. So, and that's a bug I got from my grandmother. She was a genealogist where you research family history, so she wrote two books on that. So I think that's where my love of history comes from, is uh, my grandmother. Like, when I got to university, it was like, okay, I can take my core journalism courses, and then I can take, I can choose my electives. And, like, so I would take things that I really enjoyed. So then I did well in school. But in high school, while I was taking math or like I remember taking grade 12 biology and then dropping it after high school hockey ended because I didn't need it. Like you had to, have to take six classes to play. And I was like, well, I don't need this crap. And Mrs. Hilty was like, thank you for dropping the course. I think I was <laughs> probably rocking about a 39 in the course at that point. So for me, and I think this is probably true for most people, if you find a passion and you want to learn about that passion, it's easy. But if you're forced to learn about something you're not interested in, it's work. So for me, learning about hockey history or journalism, is it's, it's easier, right? It's not like I'm a genius at it, but I'm interested at it. But for me, sitting in a class in grade 10 listening to mathematical stuff was just a complete and total waste of time. 
Well, you knew your passion was going to be for sports casting. You got your first big break doing play-by-play commentary for a junior A team in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia as a volunteer. Yep. And eventually your work led to them hiring you and actually paying you to do a weekly news program, followed by an eventual move to Calgary. The headline here, Ken, is within a one-year period, you actually went from covering junior A hockey to covering the Calgary Flames. Yeah, so I, I stopped junior A in 99. That was in Nova Scotia, and my mom was living in Calgary. So I went out there, and I got a job at A-Channel Calgary. Started there as a morning writer, and it was, I guess, a quick ascension. So I went from morning writer to full-time writer. I was morning writer for about eight weeks, and I had to get up at 3 a.m. and write the news at 4 a.m. It was I had literally had tinfoil on my windows like Elvis to keep the light out. I worked from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. for 10 bucks an hour. And then uh, afternoon writer and then videographer. So then by the start of the 2000 season, I was a sports guy. So I guess it would have been a little over a year from junior A to rolling into an NHL dressing room. And I remember when I was, was younger working in Halifax, I was intimidated to be, to interview like the Halifax Mooseheads. And then I, when I got to Calgary, I'm like, well, they hired me and Tim Shannis doesn't pay the bills. So I got... Like that gave me a lot of confidence, right? So I was off to the races and it was working in Calgary was just awesome. Flames weren't a very good team when I was there, uh, but they were young and they were kind of young like I was, um, which was kind of interesting. Uh, Jerome McGinley was the team star. Jerome is, is classy, one of the classiest, if not the classiest athletes you, you could ever encounter. So it was a pleasure to work there and to watch him become this superstar was really cool. And yeah, Calgary was a great place. Um, I was young. It was a young city. There were a lot of Nova Scotians out there. A lot of my buddies had moved out there for work. So a lot of people I could relate to. There were older broadcasters like Doug Basin and Kurt Studley, uh, guys who really helped me along. And yeah, I couldn't think of a better place just to, like, I kind of always thought uh, maybe I'll just be the Channel 10 guy forever in Nova Scotia, which I didn't want to be the Channel 10 guy. No offense, but I, I wanted to move up. And to get that break in Calgary, um, my news director was Mark Campbell. He gave me a big break. It was, it was awesome. So just to, like, I think of my news director was Mark Campbell, Rob Palmer. And it was just, it was the break I needed. And they, they let me be me. So that was the first time when I was on TV that I was kind of trying to be myself and not trying to be a sportscaster. So by the end of it, I was the, uh, the weeknight guy. I was on at 11 and doing sports five nights a week. It was, it was a blast. And I was just being myself and just just learning you know i was young i was i was uh hungry probably a little ignorant but it all it all made for a lot of fun this got you on your path ken because you had stops in ottawa edmonton finally the big smoke toronto you work with cp24 tsn the nhl network before landing at sportsnet in 2011 how did you get the sportsnet gig uh i reached out to the boss down there named scott woodgate and um I just cold called him, told him I was looking for a contract. I was freelancing before that, and I wanted to uh, trying to think of it. I was, yeah, I was married at the time and, you know, looking to start a family. And freelancing was, was paying the bills, but it wasn't uh, the stability I was looking for. I was always a guy that had anxiety slash depression. And when you have anxiety and you're going week to week trying to book your next gig, like, part of you can't trust yourself that you're going to get it and in retrospect you know i was going to be fine but 
I wanted to know when I was working. I wanted to know that money would be coming in. So I just reached out to Scott and we just clicked right away. And I think within five days I had a contract offer and I was like, let's do this. So I took the plunge and they hooked me up with Ivanka right away. And I knew right away what my hours was gonna were going to be. It's like, okay, you're going to be anchored Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I was like, this is amazing. I know when I'm going to be working. And uh, it just clicked. I got lucky. Ivanka and I hit it off. And uh, there was kind of instant chemistry there. I don't know what it was, but it, it worked. Like, uh, it's kind of like, we're kind of like oil and water. I'm, you know, she's born and raised in Oakville, which I consider Toronto. And, and I'm from, you know, a little old Nova Scotia. So we got country mouse and the city mouse and <laughs> just kind of works. How many people can believe that your uh, Sportsnet co-anchor Ivanka Osmak is your wife? Don't know if many believe she's my wife. You know, we get questions and stuff sometimes, but uh, the fact that if someone did believe we were married, I think that'd be a compliment because it would show we get along. But I get along well with my real life wife as well. But yeah, she's the work <laughs> wife. But it's funny because Ivanka and my wife are actually good friends and I'm buddies with her uh, husband. We all went to Vegas together on a trip once and, you know, we hang out off camera too. But it's funny because some some people on camera, they get along professionally, but they don't hang out off camera. But we actually get along, which is which is nice. It makes it easy going. It's just like, you know, like you don't want to go into to work with. There's a lot of people who have to go into work and work with someone they don't like. I'm lucky I work with someone I like. And I like the thing. Mm. She thinks the same. Well, you are lucky. History is littered with uh, partnerships that look good on, on camera, but not so great behind. I know. And it's hilarious when you find out, you know, that these co-anchors actually didn't like each other. Last, what, last night I watched Major League and. Doran punches out Rick Vaughn at the end, but they won together, so it'll work sometimes, you know. Certainly, we do love on this podcast to go behind the scenes, see how the sausage gets made. Uh, can your esteemed colleague, Jesse Fuchs, who was on this podcast recently, explain you have a suit room at Sportsnet, yeah. which I guess is good news if, if you don't like shopping for clothes. Yeah, it's awesome. We have a wardrobe room, so I show up looking like, you know, t-shirt and jeans and it's like any other job. You just change into your uniform. So police officer goes to work, changes into his cop uniform, firefighter, firefighter uniform. I change into my anchor uniform. So all the suits are there. We have a wardrobe. Uh, head of our wardrobe is named Deb Berman. So when I first got the sports net, you go shopping with Deb, and she kind of likes one thing, and I, I like very loud clothes. And it took us a while to get on the same page, but now we're totally on the same page. So we just – I don't even – ask what she has for me it just shows up it's fantastic ken how much of your anchor work is uh, scripted via teleprompter and how much are you kind of freestyle riffing very little is scripted the highlights are all scripted but um, i ad lib as i go through them when you see me delivering something on camera with like a thing over my shoulder i've written that beforehand but when ivanka and i pop up at a commercial start of the show it's all off the cuff so i'd say Anytime you see us on camera, I'd say it's scripted 20, 30% of the time. The rest is just me and Ivanka ad living. Well, it's great to have that mix. Yeah, it surprises a lot of people that we're just um, kind of riffing, but that's I think that's what makes it work. We're, we're a glorified postgame show, right? We're coming out of the Blue Jays, and I'm not going to come on and read some stat. I'm just going to come on and go, wow, how about that home run of the ninth? And we'll, we just react, which makes it a lot of fun. I think one thing that's interesting, Ken, is with the globalization of sports, you've got athletes from all over the world with 
names that might be unique to a North American audience. Yeah. How do you work on pronunciation? You must sometimes get a real shock when a highlight comes up and you don't have time to uh, figure it out beforehand. Oh boy, yeah, because we read our highlights cold, right? We're on a, usually at nine thirty or ten, so they're coming in. So uh, you do your research ahead of time, but uh, luckily the guys and girls in the highlight factory can know to spell a lot of the names with uh, the phonetic pronunciation, so that helps. But yeah, usually once a night we're hitting the button to the producer going what's the pronunciation of that name because as much as you think you know everything no one knows everything and there are so many names like you think between basketball baseball football hockey just those four then you throw in soccer one of the things i hate about uh, modern sports tv is someone has an opinion on absolutely everything and i'm like if you have an opinion on absolutely everything you're bsing half the time because no one knows everything so i refuse to say that i know every name in sports how could i so, yeah, you just you just ask for help and, you know, you do your research ahead of time. Like hockey, I'm pretty good because I like to think I know my hockey. Uh, but when some guy gets called up from the minors and you're like, what is that? You need the help of the Highlight Factory. And that's when the guys who are watch- watching, it's like in their Highlight Factory, if you're doing highlights of the Arizona Diamondbacks in San Diego, you watch that whole game. And then so those guys will know how to say the name and you just, how do you pronounce that? And they'll give you a tip. It's all about the teamwork. Absolutely. It makes the dream work. Let's talk about some of your sportscasting highlights. Working rinkside in Montreal for Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah, that was a dream come true. I don't don't get to do that very often. But once in a while when they're in a, a human resources crunch, I'll get the tap. I don't think I did any games this year, but uh, it's funny. I just ran into Kirk Muller, name drop, last week at the <laughs> Dale Howardchuck Charity, Celebrity Charity Classic. Dale's awesome. Uh, he was a, just a wonderful guy and... Uh, his charity, Howard Chuck Strong, does a lot of work. They help out Easter Seals a lot, which is a, it's a really cool charity. But Randy Kirk and I was laughing. I'm telling them how my first ever interview on Hockey Night in Canada was Kirk Muller. And I'd known Kirk before, which was nice because I was very nervous. They sent me out to the bench uh, pregame. Kirk was an assistant coach at the Habs then. And uh, my job was to sit on, stand on the bench and Kirk is going to come out for an interview. So the Habs, I go on the bench first and then the Habs come out. And I grew up worshipping the Montreal Canadiens. So for me to be sitting there with a Hockey Night in Canada mic flag and Canadians coming out, I'm just like, okay, you control yourself. You control yourself. So Kirk's coming out. I hadn't seen him yet that day. And he comes out with a head down, looks up. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, icebreaker. It's just what I needed. So we did our interview and off to the races. So sometimes in my job, you just need a reminder once in a while that you're here for a reason because they hired you. And also, it's just TV. Like, take it out of notch, everybody. There's some people I think that take sports way too seriously. I am not one of them. Perhaps I don't take it seriously enough for some people, but that's fine. That's me. Everybody's going to be nervous sometimes. Everybody's going to have a bad day sometimes. Kindness goes a long way. And just by looking up and giving me a smile and, hey, what are you, what are you doing here? Kirk made me feel very comfortable. So thank you, Kirk Muller. For that, uh, Great. You know, I know he didn't even know he was doing it, but uh, yeah, that was my first time on camera for Hockey Night, which was just an incredible experience. And then producer Butter called me after the game. He's like, "Come on up with the ice," and I'm like, "Oh no, God, I screwed up." And he gave me a game puck and a practice puck, and I was like, "Oh my God, I did it!" And if I never get to do it again, that was my dream was to be on Hockey Night in Canada. It's funny when the game was over. So I'm rambling here, but when the game was over, I called my dad. Or he called me, one or the other, and I called my mom, too. And So when I was doing the pregame in the Bell Center, you know, I'm on camera, and then 
as I'm on camera, the lights go off. My light stays on, but the lights behind me go off and the, the big light show starts in the bell center. And I'm talking to my dad. He's like, you look great. You look great. And on the pregame, you were doing excellent. But then you turned the lights off behind you. I'm like, dad, I don't control the lights at the bell center when the Montreal Canadiens are coming up. But so it's funny from a viewer's perspective, like sometimes the viewers think you're in control. Of. It's like, dad, I, I'm not in charge of the lighting grid. So to do that game in Montreal to me was just, that's as good as it got for me. Like you can talk about Olympics or Super Bowls, but to be on Hockey Night Canada for Montreal for me, it was just like, it'd be all end all. Well, that is a clear number one, but we are going to talk about Olympics and Super Bowls. Let's start with the 2012 Super Bowl in New Orleans, yeah. also known as the Harbaugh Bowl and the Blackout Bowl. Black. Ken, what do you remember? Oh, I remember most of all the blackout because... When you're at the Super Bowl, there's so many media. Only so many can be looking at the field. The rest are in a room buried down underneath. So uh, a lot of media outlets have a deal. Like you can go up for one quarter and watch from the stands and then trade off with another guy. So Stephen Brunch and I are in the bowels of the uh, Superdome in a room with, I don't know, hundreds, a couple hundred other media. And there had been so much security going in. You know, it's, it's the Super Bowl. It's 2012. You never know what's going to happen. And we're down in there, we're watching the game, and, and there's no lighting in this room, right? It's just some big, giant room in the bottom of this concrete mess that's the the Super Bowl, and bang, it just goes black. And we kind of look at each other, and we're like, what's going on? But I know we're both thinking, is there's something really, and we're like, something really bad happening. I don't know how long it was, maybe 20 minutes, and everything, you know, soon enough we get the notice that the power's out, but. For a second there, you're like, holy smokes, Like this is a little trippy, but uh, game got back to normal. Uh, people asked me what Beyonce was like at the half. I was up there. I'm like, oh, she was probably awesome, but that's not my thing. And uh, game's over, and I'm on the field at the Super Bowl talking to Joe Flacco and going, what am I doing here? You know, again, again, why am I, why am I the one at the Super Bowl? And then I'm like, okay, I'm the one at the Super Bowl because they hired me and they want me. So, uh, yeah, that was that was cool. Another highlight for you must have been the 2012 London Summer Olympic Games. What was that all like? That was incredible. That was absolutely incredible. Our anchor desk was right down by the Tower Bridge, which was just an amazing backdrop. Like it, I, I got there and I'm like, I can't believe how good this looks. And then they put me on set. It didn't look as good. But we were live every night at 10 o'clock London time, which is 6 o'clock here-ish. I'm ishing it, right? I don't know my time zones that well. Probably earlier. I don't know. Earlier or later. But we were on every night around 10 London time. And it was awesome. Like So the first, I think I think I was, I want to say 20 days in a row, 18, 19, 20 days in a row. I stayed at a Holiday Inn not far down the street. So I'd walk back and forth to the set every day. Get to the set. That's what it was. We were on five-ish London time. Get to the set around two. If I had free time in the day, I'd go to some events. Beach volleyball was not far from the hotel so I, I went to a lot of beach volleyball went to field hockey was at Wimbledon I think it was Murray and I think it was Murray and Federer had this epic match where it was they just kept going and going and going and going and we eventually had to leave because we had to get back to the set and then as Canadians start winning medals they just show up on the set in the middle of the show I think my favorite interview from that was uh, Missy Franklin was the big swimming star that Olympics uh she was from the USA and she won all these medals, but I had a connection to her because her family used to vacation in 
Pictou County, Nova Scotia, because her aunt lived there. So we did this interview with her, and then at the end, I called her parents in, what was kind of cute. And then at the very end of the interview, I she name dropped somebody, and the guy had gone to school with my dad, med school with my dad. He was one of the four original doctors who moved to town with my dad. So we got off camera, and we all started laughing, talking about uh, Maida and Sandy Murray, who were good friends with my parents. Had gone, so it's just such a small world. So when I, I guess that kind of shows you when I when I meet somebody, I always try to establish a connection. I wear loud clothes, and I think part of the reason I wear loud clothes, aside from the black t-shirt I'm wearing right now, I do have pink shorts on. It's an icebreaker. <laughs> So if somebody's like, nice shorts, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm just like, it's an icebreaker. So I just try to relate to people like that Missy Franklin interview was so cool because it was just, it was so relatable to maybe not everybody in Canada. Like I'm interviewing an American swimmer, but I'm trying to make it relatable. So she's got this connection, but I think it, it made her relatable to people because she's like, a, she's a big Olympic star, but her family's just these regular folks small town people at heart and like most of us are so it's kind of what i was trying to get at with that and, and we hit it on the head but yeah london london was fantastic it was so cool just to live in london for three weeks but it's funny because you know when the when the show's over uh, you try to go for a drink and all the pubs there are closed so it's like you know you'd have a few beer at our hotel but it was a blast if you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Terry O'Reilly, Evan Solomon, Ellen Roseman, Toronto Life's Malcolm Johnson, and broadcasting legend Ted Wallishan. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. You cannot speak with Ken Reed without speaking about card collecting. In the early 80s, your grandfather would give you 25 cents. You would race down to Mr. Fraser's store on Union Street in Picto to buy a pack of hockey cards. But Ken, the 1979-80 OPG Wayne Gretzky rookie card remains your most prized card. It exists under a very unique co-ownership, co-parenting agreement yes. with your brother. What's the story behind your acquisition and care of the Gretzky rookie card? My brother and I were 80s kids, so we were massive Gretzky fans, right? So we're hardcore card collectors. And the one hockey card we want, obviously, is the Wayne Gretzky rookie. But, I mean, it's going for hundreds of dollars even in the late 80s or early 90s. And, you know, we weren't going to have that kind of money to spend on a card. So my mom had come home with a box of cards from an auction. It was in Westville, and she paid 10 bucks for it. And, you know, it's just a box of cards. We open up and think, oh, my God, they're blue. There's 79, 80, the blue borders, that's Gretzky's rookie. Imagine if there's a Gretzky rookie in here. I'm going for 10 bucks. So we start rifling through the box. and I forget which one of us came upon it, but I'm like, oh, my God, I got a Gretzky rookie. We go through the rest. There's only one Gretzky in there. We're like, ah. We start fighting over. We start chucking fists. Mom's like, stop, stop. You can share it. You can share it. And we're like, wow, I guess we can. So to this day, our, the Wayne Gretzky rookie resides in my house. It belongs to my brother and I. My mom got it, the bargain of a lifetime, a whole box for 10 bucks with a Gretzky rookie in there. He was and remains our favorite player. We share the card. It's a connection to mom. It's a connection to the game. People always ask me what it's worth, and I'm like, I, I understand why you asked that because most people want to know what a card is worth, but for me, a card is worth the story, and that's a priceless story. And it's 
it's uh it's not in the greatest shape so it's not going to change my life financially what's it worth probably a thousand bucks but the story behind it is something special to us and i hope that my kids end up with it one day it's just one of those things you can pass on well wise words from your mom you can share it sharing is caring Ken, what began as a love for the hobby with a close family bond translated into writing two successful books on hockey cards, hockey card stories, true tales from your favorite players, and hockey card stories too, more true tales from your favorite players where you interview players about the stories behind their cards. How did these book projects come about? I guess in a way it was just an evolution of my, my collecting story. So like a lot of guys, I stopped collecting when I went away to college and then when you start working, you don't have a lot of discretionary income. And there's other concerns when you're in your 20s and 30s. And I think as you get older, you get a little more nostalgic. So I would always look at my cards when I went home to Halifax. And I'd say, oh, my God, I never noticed what a horrible coloring job that was on that Mel Bridgman card. Or why does that guy have a perm? I know him. He doesn't have curly hair. Look at the mustache on that guy. And I got my card shipped up here to Toronto because I knew I was going to move from here. And I just started looking at these cards, and a lot of people were blogging about hockey cards at that time, I think, as people who were big collectors in the 80s got older. And I kind of go, well, what are the I was thought, what are the guys on the cards thinking? Like, what does Mike Krusielinski think of this airbrush job, this crayon L.A. Kings uniform? So I get this idea for a book. I talked to Ian Mendez, who had written a book with J.U. O'Klanen, and he's like, you need a literary agent. And I said, what's that? And he hooks me up with this guy named Brian Wood. I know you've interviewed and uh, I pitched Brian my idea and much to my surprise, he actually likes it. And uh, Brian shops it around very quickly as a deal for me. And yes, I have to write a book. How am I going to do this? So I was working at Sportsnet and luckily when you call someone and you say, hey, it's Ken from Sportsnet. Sportsnet has a lot of street cred, so that helps me maybe get in there. And I call up 59 guys and get their stories. And the great thing about hockey players is they're hockey players and they're easy to talk to. They're relatable. And I thank each and every one of them for for giving me time to talk about an old hockey card and the stories they had. A lot of times it was initially about the card, but it would lead to other areas, obviously, like anything. The card's the icebreaker in this situation. Yeah, I I wrote the book with ECW Press. It was very well received. I couldn't believe how many copies sold. And uh, it's like, geez, maybe I, I I really enjoyed the writing process. And I think what I enjoyed most about the writing process, process were two parts, were the interview and then creating the story based on that interview. And off it went. And I ended up doing a sequel to the book. And I've done a bunch of other books. But, uh, yeah, that gave me uh, street cred in the hockey card game. Because uh, I guess when you're an author, people think you know about the subject, right? Like they, they wrote the book on it, right? That was uh, that was how that came about, and it was it was very fun to do, and it also helped me uh, really uh, appreciate my initial idea for the book was there's no such thing as a common card because every card has a story. But publishers like, look, we need some guys, the big names to to help push it. So guys like Eric Lindros, Dougie Gilmore, Don Cherry, thank you very. So very, very much for taking the time to talk to me and give my book a little cred. So it was awesome. I enjoyed it. And I guess I still enjoy it because I'm still writing. A lot of authors, they uh, the, the, the saying in the, in the book world is the best two days of writing a book are the day you get your book uh, contract and the day it's 
published because the stuff in between is torture, but I don't look at it that way. Right now, the biggest hurdle I have in my next upcoming book is I need one picture of one guy left. So I'm desperately trying to find a picture of him. The deadline's tomorrow. But uh, I, I honestly find it a lot of fun. Well, it's nice to be able to branch out and everything comes back to this core of your sports cards. How do you possibly safely store 70,000 sports cards? Uh-huh. Uh, number one, understanding wife could take up a lot of closet space. 70,000 doesn't take up as much closet space as you think, but it takes up a couple closets. I'd like to pare down. I'd like to get the number down. When you collect in the 80s and 90s, you end up with a lot of the same card. So eBay helped uh, during the pandemic. I set up an eBay shop, started selling off a lot of, I wouldn't even call them doubles. I'd call them quadruples and octuplets, or I don't even know how high it went. So that's good. I Maybe I'll, you know, I just gave a bunch away to a kid the other day and doubles. But uh, yeah, uh, you use the old uh, 3200 bin storage box, pile them up funny like uh i'm looking right now and i can see a couple binders over there and i know in that closet there's you know in my closet i'm looking at right now there's probably ten thousand cards and that's a closet that my wife and i are supposed to share so an understanding wife is very key well an understanding wife is clearly key and as an outsider ken i have to say perhaps you do have a bit of a problem because troy gamble played just 72 games in the nhl all of them with the vancouver canucks Yet you have over 50 copies of the exact same OPG Premier Troy Gamble rookie card. Why? Troy was uh, the local boy done good when I grew up. He was the first guy from my generation from Pictou County to make it to the NHL. Now, before, we'd had a guy named Lowell McDonald. Lowell played in the NHL in the 60s and 70s. When in 1990, that's and you're 15 years old. In 1971, might as well be, you know, 1492. So... This OPG premiere set came out, and it was the hottest set of 1990. You could not get your hands on the stuff. It was what we considered rare. Now, in retrospect, it probably wasn't that rare, but in Pictou County, Nova Scotia back then, it was rare, and I wanted the Troy Gamble rookie card because he was a local guy, and he was in the set. It was his rookie. I might have had one or two, and then as you get older, you see them around, and you're like, oh, I'll buy that lot of Troy Gambles, and there's another one I'll buy that just I don't know, maybe it's some <laughs> missing part of my childhood I'm trying to replace, but I always liked Troy. Uh, he, he taught at a hockey school in the summer of 1984 I was at. So I always liked his story. A kid going from Pictou County in 1984 all the way out to Medicine Hat, Alberta. It must have been terrifying as a kid to do that. He made it all the way to the NHL. So whenever I see one, I pick it up. Why not? only cost me a buck or so, right? And do you have a relationship today with Troy Gamble, the adult? Do not know Troy at all. If I met him, it would have been at that hockey school in 84. He lives in Texas where he played uh, He played for the Houston Arrows. I want to say he lives in Sugarland, Texas. I did write the local rink back home saying hang his sweater up because they got a few NHLers up there. And I was in there a couple of years ago. And there's no Troy Gamble. I'm like, put a Troy Gamble sweater up, man. Let's go. So that would be the extent of my relationship with Troy. Well, speaking of Nova Scotia heroes, Ken, you're diligently working to assemble a collection of the first card for every Nova Scotia-born NHL player. How is that project coming along? Really well. I actually just picked up a card uh, this week from, I want to say, 1924. It was uh, of a guy, one of the first Nova Scotians to play in the NHL. And it's funny, as I 
as I do this little project, I kind of find cards of guys that I didn't think had cards. So this guy was from Parsbro. Stanton Jackson was his name. The card's actually in pretty good shape, too. I was surprised by that. He was, I believe, from Parsbro, Nova Scotia. So, um, if you, you know, God bless the internet. I can Google and within seconds. I can find every Nova Scotia-born hockey player. So it's a fun little project. That, I believe, would be the oldest card of the bunch. But uh, unfortunately, I have to get the Sidney Crosby card, which is going to break the bank a little. So I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. But uh, yeah, it's fun. Probably too proud of where I come from. I'm very proud of where I come from. And, you know, I I like collecting things that appeal. People always say, what, do I, what should I collect? I'm like, whatever you want, right? Like, it's your collection. It's not mine. So collect for yourself. Be selfish. So I admire guys who make it from my neck of the woods all the way to the top. So that's kind of... That would be a, an aspect of my collection, yeah, for sure. Well, on the note of collecting what you want, Ken, is there such a thing as a white whale of sports cards for you? The one you really, really, really want, but seems elusive. Uh, it's it's out there. I've seen it lots, uh, but I'd love to have a 5152 Parker Sporty Howe. Again, that's a money thing. It's expensive. If I could get it at the right place, price in the right condition, I might might go for it. Uh, there was a guy in high school, his dad had two of them. I should have pulled the trigger then, but it was like 1200 bucks in 1991, and that's way unattainable. I wish it was 1991 again. Hot tub time machine it back. But uh, yeah, I would love to get a 5152 Gordie Howe. And of course, a 52 Tops Mickey Mantle. I came, what I think is close on a 52 Tops Mickey Mantle a couple of years ago, but it didn't happen. So yeah, you could throw two cards in my collection right now it would be the 51 52 how and the 52 man well when you talk about sports trading cards you do unfortunately have to talk about some issues of authenticity and you are now an ambassador for ebay's authenticity guarantee for trading cards what does this entail and why did you get involved sure ebay contacted me and we kind of got together and they are launching an authenticity program and I was like, well, this is pretty cool because I buy and sell on eBay. And when I buy something, I want to know it's the real deal. Uh, so what it is, is if you buy an ungraded card in Canada at $250 or more, and by ungraded, I mean it does not in a slab. It hasn't been graded by one of the authentication companies. Uh, so now when you buy it for $250 or more, instead of me shipping that card to you, say you bought it off me, I will ship it to eBay. They have professional authenticators who examine the card, say, yeah, this is actually a Wayne Gretzky rookie, and yes, it's in very good to excellent condition. Like the Gretzky rookie, for example, has been counterfeited. The Brett Hall rookie had been counterfeited in the past. So experts are going to look at that card, and they're going to say, this is an authentic card, then it'll be shipped to you. comes with an eBay authenticity guarantee. It comes with it in a nice little uh, stand-up blue thing from eBay, which looks really cool, actually, when you display your card. So I got a Messier rookie through that. I got a Terry Sawchuk 54-55 tops through that that I just love. So it's kind of, as a buyer on eBay, it gives you a little peace of mind that, okay, if I spend money on this, I know I'm getting the real deal because as much as you'd like to think everybody's above board, you never know who's out there. And uh, it's it's a pretty cool, uh, it, it, it actually looks good. The stand looks really good, but it's just, it's peace of mind for a collector. The hobby's built on trust. And if I buy a card from you, I want to know that it's the real deal. So this this is just something to help us out, help both people out, really. Just to authenticate a card and know that you're getting the real deal. Well, it sounds like a good program. Everyone will come out better for it. Let's 
close Ken with some lighter stuff. How often do you get misdirected mail or email for Ken Reed, the crazy Canuck skier? <laughs> Never got misdirected email or mail for him. I am mistaken for him from time to time. I still laugh at it. And now I just usually play along because I don't want to break people's hearts. You know, I had somebody give me like a bunch of stuff about skiing. They thought I was him. And I was like, yeah. And I'm like, I, I know I've met Ken. He's a super nice guy. We once did a story in Calgary where I video, I, we skied against each other in a video arcade game. I think I was wearing the skiing spandex and stuff. But Ken's a super nice guy. And yeah, it was weird going to be a sportscaster and knowing my name was Ken Reed. Like I always say, he's the real Ken Reed. He's the Ken Reed. I'm just some dude. So yeah, he's super kind, super nice fella. But yeah, it happens. And I'm like, Man, I remember watching Ken on CBC Sports Weekend with Brian Williams in 1984. Ken was the Silver Fox then. He had gray hair then. I'm like, you know, we got a, we're a little different in age, but I, you know, it happens. It, it's, yeah, it, 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 I'm never surprised by it. I always just kind of laugh at it, but I'd say it happens. You wrote a book, I have to tell you, about Dennis Marook, yeah. and I love the Dennis Marook mustache. That's awesome. Yeah. It's fantastic. Dennis still has it. I'll be seeing Dennis at the Joe Carter Golf Tournament soon. Um, Dennis is a great friend. Lives in London now. Just got married. I emceed his wedding last summer, which was a huge honor. And yeah, when we wrote the book, chapter two, it was like, we got to address this, Dennis, because I know people are going to ask about it, right? It's the white whale, right? Or the white elephant, sorry. It's the white elephant in the room. It's like, let's just talk about the mustache, Dennis. Get rid of it. So uh, we wrote the book. Uh, the unforgettable story of hockey's forgotten 60 goal man. Because when people go to list all the 60 goal scores, they usually get down to the end and there's a couple guys missing. Dennis might be one of them. No disrespect. And Dennis knows that, but beauty Tash and that guy can still play and that guy can still put the puck in the net. It's incredibly. Well, that's great to hear. <laughs> we always love the mustache. All right. Ken, your next book, as noted, comes out October 24th, available now for pre-sale. Ken Reed's Hometown Hockey Heroes, your marketing team, tells me it will be an inspiring and entertaining new collection of hockey stories about local legends who define the game and its values in communities across Canada. What was your process for writing this particular book? So again, this is something I've learned as, as I got a little older, and it started with writing hockey card stories. Write what you know. You know, don't try to be something you're not. So for me, I'm a small town guy. And when I was a kid, there was only NHL was Saturday night or in your hockey cards. And the biggest game for me every week was the Picto Mariners. They were the junior C team. They played Saturday nights. It was awesome. We lived right up the hill from the rink. They played Saturday every Saturday at seven thirty. At seven o'clock, we'd go down, buck to get in, buck for a pack of hockey cards, buck for the program. You're good for the night. Pat them on the shoulders as they came out. I was like 10, 11. These guys were. 18, 19, 20. I thought they were men. They were the best. They won the Nova Scotia title four years ago in a row. And their best player was a guy named Teapot, Dana Johnson. He had a Dennis Marouk mustache. Still has a Dennis Marouk mustache to this day. He's still the local legend of the town. Like he used to win the golf championship every year. He's the best lobster fisherman in town. He's the best pool player. He's the best darts player. He's still the best hockey player. And I've worshipped Teapot my entire life. And I'm like, at one, I don't know when it was, maybe a couple of years ago. I'm like, gotta be a guy like T in every town, right? Like, there has to be. So I pitched this book to Simon and Schuster and and Kevin Hansen, 
the big honcho down there, downtown Toronto, was like, I really like this story. Go for it. So I'm like, oh my God, again, got to write a book. So I put it out on Twitter, you know, who's your, are you from a small town and who's your hometown hockey hero that never made the NHL? And man, the responses just come flooding in. And I'm like, wow, this is really relatable. Like I didn't, I knew it was relatable. I didn't think it was that relatable. So stories just start coming in. And I mean, we've got some just amazing stories. Like one of the guys is a guy named Robbie Forbes who helped win a, an Allen Cup in 1986 for Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And Robbie just happens to be Sidney Crosby's uncle, you know. And then you go to uh, you go to Brantford, Ontario, home of Wayne Gretzky, right? But there's also a guy named Paul Palillo who also skated hunched over and wore a Jofa helmet. But he was the hero of the Brantford smoke in the mid-1990s. And old guys in Brantford still will talk about Paul Palillo. Then you go to uh, Robert, Saskatchewan, and there's this epic senior player who played senior hockey for 22 years named Tyson Watney. And it's like, it's cool because there's just all these guys with all these crazy stories and it's like, everybody has a story. And this is, this is a book I hope people in all these small towns will pick up and relate to. And it's a book I hope people in the big cities will pick up and go, wow, there's more to hockey than just the national hockey league. Great. Well, like you say, everyone's got a story. Yeah, for sure. Now, of course, that book, although it doesn't come out till October, would pretty much be done, so to speak. You're always a busy guy, Ken. What is next? What are you working on? What's in the hopper? Oh, man, I got another one coming out in a couple of years. It's about NHL scouts. So I'm just going to, I know I know a few of them, so hopefully I'm going to call them and they won't hang up on me. And I just want to know what, what goes into it and you know, it's 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 a profession that's changed a lot with analytics and, you know, and I want to know some old school stories. I want to know some new school stories. Uh, how'd you discover this guy? Maybe go a little off the radar of, of how some guys were discovered. And whenever I start my interviews, I just, I don't really have a plan. I just start and we chat and then we craft these stories. So there's a couple guys I have on the call list, but yeah, I have to get, I have to get onto that. Thanks for the reminder. I think that's due out in... 2025 so i got a couple of years fantastic well it's always nice to know what your next gig is that's you always keep busy scoop. i think you're the first to get that scoop there you go i like that too that's two scoops today yeah ken where can we best follow you are you active on social media where do you like to interact with uh, your fans well the best place i like to interact is in person if somebody's nice enough to stop me and not insult me it's good to have a chat every once in a while i'm on instagram it's Ken Reed Sportsnet. Ken Reed Sportsnet, all one word. And I'm on Twitter at SN Ken Reed. The SN, of course, stands for Sportsnet. SN Ken Reed on Twitter. Ken Reed Sportsnet on Instagram. Instagram, I usually have a lot of fun opening packs of hockey cards and baseball cards, showing off my collection. And on, on Twitter, it's like everybody else. I'm trying not to post angry rants. Good. Well, you and I will keep going with that. Good. It has been very nice to meet you, get to know you, hear all the stories. You got your hands in so many pots. It's fantastic. And I want to wish you uh, continued success. Andrew, thanks. I appreciate you having me, buddy. And good luck with the podcast. And uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, appreciate your interest. And this was a fun chat, buddy. Thanks. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Ken Reed, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.